Christ is risen. Amen. What a beautiful words and how much hope they bring to our souls. For he is risen and he's alive. If you open with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look at the resurrection that brings hope. Hope to our lives. Chapter 15, verses 1, we'll read and pray, and then we'll expound the text for the next 45 or so minutes. If you're with me, this is one of the greatest chapters, and perhaps the greatest chapter, on the resurrection. There are many others, Daniel chapter 12, but this one is right on speaking about the resurrection hope. Paul, in this chapter, proves the resurrection without a doubt. And this is my hope and my joy that you'll be encouraged today to live the life today, here and now, with your eyes on the resurrection that is to come, that as Christ himself rose from, he, from the dead, as God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected him, on the third day, he will resurrect your life. Oh, how much hope it brings today, now. Read with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God... By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are all even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. In fact, he, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins, then those also who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, 
Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We pray that this message would encourage our hearts to live here and now for you. As those who know that we will live again. May you bless us. May you empower me to present clearly this hope. And bless our hearts to accept it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Remember the story of pastor as he was walking on somewhere around the uh, Easter celebration with his family just for a walk. And there was four years old. His son was walking with him and he tested him. He said, well, does he know what Easter is all about? And he asked, son, do you know what we celebrate in here on Easter? And, and his son said, well, yes, I know. We're celebrating that Jesus died on the cross. And his pastor said, well, I was patting myself on the shoulder thinking like, wow, he knows quite a bit about the Easter. And he was ready to, that he will expound on a penal substitution and the substitutional atonement and the wrath of God would be removed. And he said, and then what? And then his son with enthusiasm said, and then bunny jump out of the, out of the bushes and brought us chocolate. That's interesting that many celebrating this holiday, and this is amazing and, and huge holiday for Christianity without thinking the implications and the power what it brings. No, it's not about chocolate. It's not about bunny. We know that. And it's not even about you. It's about the risen Christ and the future hope for humanity. Now, Christ is risen. And I hope your hearts as those two people, two disciples who were on the way to um, Emmaus, whose heart were burning within them as Christ were explaining them and explaining them the scriptures. And whether they understood completely what the implication of resurrection means for them, it was a mystery for them. They were burning with the joy of the future hope. And on that morning, most of them, all of the believers were depressed and down, hopeless, with a dislocated faith, with thoughts uh, concentrated on death and defeat, but instead they found the empty tomb. Imagine Jesus would never rose again, just for a second, how pathetic and horrible that would be. Christianity would be heavy, dark, hopeless religion, no better than Buddhism and Hinduism, offers nothing for certain, but perhaps some nirvana at the end of the day, which becomes an ocean of nothingness. But praise be to God that Christ has written. Now, when we talk about resurrection, we are talking about the centrality of Christianity. We are battling for faith and for eternal life. No resurrection, no eternal life. And if the resurrection is not true, nothing of Christianity is true. And Paul, in these 58 verses, proving and explaining the doctrine, 
that without resurrection, Christianity would have no meaning at all, and it would be worthly, worthless philosophy, empty, useless, and even dangerous. Now, Paul addressing this issue because of the problem in verse 12. If you look with me, the problem that he addressing here is expressed in verse 12, says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Greeks didn't like the resurrection. They didn't like to come back into dirty clothes of the body and to live again. It was not conceptual for their minds. And some creep in into the Corinthian church saying that, yes, Christ rose from the dead, but we will not. We will live in spirit. And there is no spirit, uh, physical resurrection of the body, but there's a spiritual resurrection in which we would live forever. And perhaps you find yourself like, why do we need to hear this message today? Because I believe in the bodily resurrection. I don't struggle with thing that I will not raise again. And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. But I want to submit to you this morning that we must live in light of our future resurrection. Because many of us don't live this way. We live like here, now, it's all we got. This is it. My life is here and I have to live for myself to the utmost ability and opportunity used for myself. Now, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and that it brings the resurrection of your body somewhere in the future, then you would post, you would, you would live in light of that reality and you would live like Christ. How did Christ live? We could condense all the gospel basically in few words. His life for yours. His life for yours. His life for mine. Because he has life eternal, he was able to give this life for us. His life for me. However, most of us often find ourselves living your life for mine. Your energy for mine. Your money for mine. But if you really believe in the resurrection, it will affect your life to spend your life on others like Christ did, knowing that we'll have eternal life with him. So here's what I propose. Since Christ rose from the dead, we must live our lives with the hope of our resurrection from the dead. And that life is different. Such perspective on life that we will live again defines us it gives us purpose and sure hope for future. This helps us to go through this life, here and now, through sufferings of the present life, knowing that something better, a lot more greater, eternal, comes because of the cross and resurrection. Now, we're going to take this text in three simple points. We will see that the confidence of our resurrection comes from the resurrection of Christ, and Paul argues and gives three basic arguments. Number one, he says that the Christian, Christianity, in essence, believes in eternal life. In essence, 
the resurrection is the centrality of the gospel. The point number one, the essence. The essence, the resurrection is the essence of the Christianity. The point number two, we'll see that he will prove it from the evidences. There is testimonies upon testimonies that the resurrection did really happen. And the thirdly, he will give a logical argument from the effect. If you deny the resurrection, this is how it affects your life. The essence, the evidence, and the effect. Now look at the essence. There's two simple points I want to make here in verses 1 to 4. And the essence of resurrection, in its essence of Christianity, if you miss resurrection, it would be missing the key ingredient to Christianity at all. You could create a dummy that would look like you or look like a person, living person, and it would have all the eternal organs and, and made from organic material, but if it misses life, this is just a dummy. It's not a real person. Christianity without resurrection is just a dummy. It's not useful for anything. But in essence, it's the central, central component of the faith. The resurrection is the central we don't even think about this, but when we talk about the death and resurrection, it defines us who we are. Jesus spoke about resurrection really clearly. And I don't think he was deluded when he said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, he who believes in me and, and to whom who sent me has bypassed from judgment into life and does not come into judgment. He says, I am the resurrection. He predicted his resurrection. In Matthew 12, he says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the so son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Early apostolic creed reads that it's essential to Christianity. It reads this way, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Paul preached the resurrection left and right. It was central to Paul's message. He says in Romans 1, 3 to 4, son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is it so central? Well, because it's all over the Scripture. Because it's, it's, it brings hope. It brings hope. No other religion will bring hope like that. We have the empty tomb. Everybody else have people in it. And if Christ did not rose again, nothing matters. The truth of resurrection Jesus spread through Roman Empire so quickly that at, at the end of the first century, the message of Jesus that rose from the dead was heard in region of Asia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. That how far and how fast it reached out. Why? Because it is God's truth for people who believe in the gospel, and it brings hope. He, the offer Jesus, resurrected Jesus offer Hope to live after death again. Everyone is certain of one thing, even here in this room, that you will die. That is a guarantee 
that is 100%, and you know that. But many people are not certain what's going to happen. Jesus brings this hope and say, I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me, you will live again. That's what the gospel offers. But Paul says that it is consistent with the scripture. Twice in this text, in verse 1 to 4, he says, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Now, when Jesus, when he's talking about the death according to the scriptures, we see that Jesus expound to the people who walk in to Emmaus, and he tells them from all, from starting from Moses to the prophets, that he has to die and suffer. And we could easily find in Isaiah 53 a suffering Jesus, suffering Messiah. But also, we see the resurrection and the hope in Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 16, verse 10, we read this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David, as a prophet, speaks about Jesus who would come. Now, Paul said, I didn't invent this message. I bring this message like a mailman. This is the chain that you could see this in these verses. Look with me, verse 15, verse 1. Now I make known the gospel which I preached, which you received, in which you also stand, but which you also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also receive. You see this chain, the beginning of this chain is in Scripture, the promise of the resurrected life in Scripture, the promise of Jesus in Scripture, and he brings them to people like us. And then he does it all over again, over and over again. I hope you're waking up every morning with this gospel that he will give you life when everything aches and you cannot move, you, ha- you hope, I will live again. And you could preach to yourself over and over again. Why Paul is so often goes to the resurrection from the dead? Because it's like love rekindled all over again. I don't know if you have this situation when you, I'm talking to married people, that you had a desire to marry your wife again. One morning, you just woke up full of joy, and you saw her so beautiful and so good and and helpful and in any way so perfect that you would say, honey, I would marry you again. If I look back 25 years ago, I will do it again. This is what Paul does with the gospel. It is so beautiful that I will tell you over, over again, preacher, give me the gospel again and again and again because it brings hope to my life. And Paul said, I didn't alter that. I receive it and I just pass it along. I receive it, pass it along exactly as I receive it. Because I want to preach the same Jesus. I don't want to preach any other Jesus. Remember Thomas when he didn't want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason I believe why he didn't want to accept him until I put my hand into his hands and into his wound. Because he said, I don't want another Jesus. I don't want a substitute. I want that one. Two weeks ago, I was talking to one seventh-day Adventist, two or three. 
And I was kind of amazed when he said, well, I went to seminary also. And I said, well, where did you go to seminary? He said, I, in South, Southern California. And I was like, wow. And he said, yeah, and I, I took classes from John MacArthur. I was like, whoa. How did you end up this way? I was thinking. But as the course of the conversation, it came out that it was in Southern California, but it was a fuller seminary rather than the master seminary. And so on, I figure out that you're talking about different John MacArthur. Perhaps. It's not that John MacArthur that taught me, or I went to his seminary, so he's someone different. And everything fell apart. Whatever he was saying, there's no commonality, no unity. When we preach Jesus, we preach the resurrected Jesus, and there's no other. Now, in verses 4, 3 to 4, we see the context of this gospel that we cannot afford to miss. The gospel, according to Scripture, is authoritative. It's not my preaching. It's not your preaching. It's not Paul's preaching. It's authoritative. It's the gospel. The mailman is nobody. The preacher is nobody. The preacher are bringing the message exactly how he's received. And if we alter that, we're at fault. And this message of the gospel has basically two components. Number one, death. And number two, resurrection. His death for mine. It's a penal substitution. It's when the penalty for my sin happened to fall and upon Jesus, not about me. It is a substitution for my sin. Jesus became the penal substitution. You say, why do you throw these words, penal substitution? Well, isn't this highly theological something? No, it's very practical. It's when I deserve to die and someone died for me. It's very practical. And I would encourage you to learn these words, the regeneration, the penal substitution, the, the substitutional atonement, more than you're learning prescription drugs names, right? We, we could learn them. They're written in Latin, and we go and search. So how much more important this for us? And if you deny and if you miss on the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's very dangerous, very dangerous. Now, Peter tried that, if you remember, in chapter 16 of Matthew. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, says, well, God forbid it, Lord, that you would die. And Jesus said, well, if you do that, you're not only mistaken, you become a witness of Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. It's very, very dangerous. And Jesus said that. I will die, and arose again. And when Christ died, it was not just an illusion. He died and was buried. It was not just a spiritual death. His body was lifeless, and he became a corpse. His death for mine. His death for yours. He ministered to us, but his death. The second component is his resurrection. Substitutional atonement here, his life for mine. His life for mine. In Romans chapter 4, verse 24, 5, we see this. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. See, if Jesus would just die and not 
rose again, we would still be in our sins. And there's no other way to enter heaven except by those two. Death of Jesus for mine, death. His life for mine. If you remember Pilgrim Progress, John Bunyan, he tells a story about a Christian who walks to a heavenly country. And as he walks, at some point, he saw the two men tremble, tumbled over the wall on the left hand on the narrow way. And they made up a pace with him. The name of one was formalist and the name of another was hypocrisy. And as, as, he, as they drew up to him, a Christian man asked them, gentlemen, where are you coming from and where are you going? To which formalists and hypocrisy said, we were born in the land of vain glory and we are going to praise to Mount Zion. And he started beginning asking questions like, why did you tumble over the wall? Don't you know that it is written that those who does not come through the door but climbs up some other way, the same is as a thief and a robber? To which they say, well, for a thousand years people did the same. And many people did so, and we don't think that's going to be a trouble. See, many people think that because many people miss on the gospel and they could enter any other way, they will be, they end up in glory. But it's not so. But we have hope. So we see this. The essence of Christianity is rooted in resurrection. This is what we live for. The number two, the evidence of resurrection in verses 5 to 11. And the basic word here in these verses, repeated about five times, it says, he appeared. Jesus, the resurrected person, appeared. There were many eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And I want to tell two things. Number one, it was a credible testimony of these people. Credible. You could often hear that, oh, since they were believers in Jesus Christ, their testimony doesn't count. Well, it's not so. Not by any historical uh, means of prove anything. Their testimony was credible. Gary Habermas, he is the professor at Liberty University who devote his life to a resurrection, proven resurrection. And he gives this two examples. He said, for instance, in order to prove that Alexander the Great really lived, we only need three sources. And they're not really good. They're not really reliable from whatever, uh, if we judge that they were people who liked Alexander the Great. But the earliest source of Alexander the Great and the best source by Plutarch and Arian happened to be 425 years after he lived. It's amazing. The biographies or mention of Alexander the Great is, is 425 years later after he lived, and nobody has any questions about them. Another example, Tiberius Caesar, who lived during Jesus' death. The same number of sources, three. His general, who testify about him, and the next source, Cassius, who lived 80 years after him. And the next source, Suetonius, who, who lived 50, 85 years after his death. You see, the resurrection, by any standard, 
Christians and not Christians, secular historians, is the best attested fact in the history. It's credible. But number two here, the testimonies are multiple. There are multiple testimonies of our eyewitnesses. And, and Paul brings us six different groups, total of 500 plus people who saw living Jesus after his death. And it was not a vision. You often could hear say that, oh, they just had a vision of Jesus. No, the word says here, appeared. Appear, he showed up. He showed up and he showed himself to them. Jesus showed up in reality. It was not hallucination. I've heard this against the Christians who had eyewitness testimony. They said they just ate some kind of mushrooms that make them ecstasy and high. Well, I don't think that is true. There are a lot of mushroom, mushrooms supposed to be there for 500 people. And they have to eat it for 40 days to keep on being high. Whoever came up with this idea, I suspect that he was high on something. But these testimonies are very credible, and there are many. Peter, he calls him Cephas, the leader of the 12, the one who denied him. Jesus appeared to him first among the 12. Restore him to ministries. The 12th. When women came to the disciples and tell, told them that the, the, the tomb is empty and he arose, nobody believed in him. They were not just cheers for Jesus, cheering for Jesus. They didn't believe. In John 20, 26, when they appeared, when Jesus appeared second time, when Thomas was there, he called it 12, the unit, the closest friends of Jesus. Those who spent three and a half years with him, I would think that they were recognized that it was real Jesus. In Acts 1-3, it says, to these also, he presented himself after he suffered by many convicting proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He proved them over and over again. That was not a hallucination. It was a reality. Then he appeared to 500 brothers and more. For 40 days, he kept appearing in one place or another. And finally, perhaps what he's talking about here, when Jesus ascended, there were many people, multiple, 500 people all together on Mount Tabor, according to the tradition that Jesus went up. Then he says that he appeared to James, perhaps the brother of Jesus who was skeptic all his life who didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, but when he saw him resurrected, he did believe. He became a leader of Jerusalem church. He was the pillar of the church, and Galatians 2.9 says. In Jerusalem, Council in Acts 15, verse 13 says, After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. He had the authority. And then he appeared to all the apostles. Now, what's the difference between the 12 and all the apostles? Apostle, the 12 is referring to those 12 or 11 at that time sent out by Jesus with a special mission. But the word apostles could mean just sent out with the mission to proclaim. There are many. Barnabas might be included in that because he called apostle in Acts 14.4. And then finally he appeared to Paul. He's the least one that would cheer for Jesus. He 
was persecuting the church. He puts that in, and he said, I did not believe in Christ before until I saw him. I didn't ask until I saw him. And he called himself a child who was miscarried, a miscarriage. I don't even deserve to be called apostles, he said, but at the end of the time, way off after the party is over, Jesus showed personally to me, and I didn't receive this from any other people. I received it from Jesus himself. These are credible witnesses, people who died for Christ. What an army of generals and soldiers who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, and they were putting their life on the line to prove and to preach. Since Christ rose from the dead, we must live our lives with the hope of our resurrection from the dead because it is attested by the Scriptures. It is the truth. It is the essence. And because it was testified by many people. And number three, the effect of the denial of resurrection. What are the consequences if you deny it? What if you live like it never happened? What are the consequences? And then you call yourself a Christian. And you know that chain that started with Paul from the Scripture, and he said, I delivered to you what I have received. The chain was attested by the testimonies of 500-plus people. It would not end up well if there is no resurrection. It would be like the railroad. Someone switch into the junkyard. It would go nowhere. And Paul gives us seven logical things where he argues here that if there's no resurrection, it is all done. It's kaput. It just, it's done. We're just wasting our time. And Paul's logic is very simple, inescapable, a daily to, deadly to the denial of the resurrection. And you cannot call yourself a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And Paul gives not an emotional appeal, not a manipulation, not a smart man who attempts to threaten people and just manipulate people, but his argument. No, his arguments are very, very clearly. You see, many people are like Jews who, at the end of their arguments, and they have nothing to say about Jesus, they took the stones. You often talk to people who have no arguments, they just get angry. Well, Paul said, well, don't get angry. I'll just show you your fallacy. In verse 12, you claim if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he wins the argument here. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been risen. But how can you believe that Christ has been risen from the dead and say that there's no resurrection? He wins here. You can't argue with all logic. Just only could you kill preacher. That's what you could. But what if there's no resurrection? Seven quick things. Number one, if there is no resurrection, Christ is just a corpse who's laying somewhere eaten by the worms. Now, oh, this just put, gives shivers to my spine. Verse 12, 13, he says, well, how can anybody say that? It's a logical, logical fallacies. And as I said before, Greeks didn't like the resurrection. Celsus, who lived in 220 A.D., said, to believe in a physical resurrection is to have the hope of worms. 
That's how they saw the resurrection. Why would I come back to my dirty clothes and dirty body and live again? I want to be freed in the spirit. But here's the problem. If it is true for you, it's true for Christ. And if it's true for Christ, we're just wasting our time. Christ is not raised. Then, number two, the proclamation is profitless. Your preaching is vain. Whatever you're doing, you're just wasting your time. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, Paul says. Preaching takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. People dedicate their life to preaching of the resurrection Jesus. They change their careers. They change their allegiance. Look at the disciples. They follow Christ. But Paul says it would be vain, profitless, empty, useless. Have you ever opened a clam hoping to find a pearl? It could look really big and fat, and you're just thinking, like, I hope there's two. You open, and there's nothing. Christianity would be just looking good on the outside, but there has no substance. It would be just big, fat clam. Great expectation, empty on the inside. Good looking on the, inside, on the outside, but empty, useless altogether. Preaching without the gospel and the resurrected Jesus is just a bunch of philosophical garbage. Number three, faith would be the futility. You know, faith is when we rely on something that will happen. We believe in Jesus, but if we believe in Jesus who can't save himself, then that would be a total useless. If we believe in Jesus that who is still in grave, then our faith is empty. Then we believe just in the fairy tale. Imagine all the people who were trusting in the coming Jesus, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, all the prophets, they all believe in, in vain. All of them died never coming back to life. And if the object of our faith, Jesus, is a hoax, and it's just a fairy tale, then you better be trying to eat healthy and organic as you can because that's all you have. You better be a vegan or whatever. Fitness and do all things. Psalm 73, 17 says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. That would be the truth. Faith would be futility, empty. So, Christ is just a corpse. Your preaching is profitless. Faith is empty and, and futile. And the disciples are deceivers. Verse 15 says, no, they're not mistaken. They're not just, they're just not deluded. They're just not hallucinated. They're liars. They're lying. They're lying about God who said that I will raise Christ from the dead, but he didn't. Interesting, in Acts, book of Acts, people come in preaching about Jesus. 145 times resurrection is mentioned. 145 times. That would be lie. That would be just deception. It was the focal point of every church preaching. Now ask yourself this, when you present the gospel, do you present the resurrection? Because if you don't, you're preaching vain gospel. And then Peter would be a con man. First two sermons that he preached in the book of Acts, 
chapter 2, verse 33, he says, This Jesus got raised up again to which we all are witnesses. Later on, he says, But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we all are witnesses. He will be a con man, he will be a liar, and will be just preaching a vain gospel, lying, deceiving people, wasting their time. Paul says, number five, not only that, the sin, sins would reign, sin would reign supreme in your life. You are not escaping from your sin. You're still dirty in your dirty clothes, and you are guilty before God. And it's interesting that there's a different word for vain here. It's wordless. It's fruitless. It's like a tree that doesn't produce anything. It's barren. Fate like this is produce nothing and produce no righteousness. We live in the righteousness of Christ. We trust in his righteousness, not in our own, but if it's not true, all we have is our own righteousness, and we're doomed. He died because you have to die, but he rose because he wants to justify you. If resurrection did not happen, there's no penal substitution for you, and you will pay for your sins, and we know that sin deserves death and death forever. But Scripture says in Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom we have put to death by handing him on the cross. Christ is just a corpse. Preaching is profitless. Faith is futile. Disciples are deceivers. Sin is still sovereign and reigning in your body. And the number six, the dead Christians are doomed. They're just doomed. Think about your grandma or your brother who died in Christ. There's no hope for him. It's just, he's just dead. The other day, we were walking at the funeral at the graveyard, and it dawned on me that all of these people, all of these people, not only my mother-in-law, but all of these people will come to life. The grave would be open, and God will restore their body and reunite the soul and the body. These people are awaiting. They're not soul sleeping. They're awaiting of this moment to come, the life again. If you walk by the ancient graveyard, you will see the different inscriptions. One of Roman inscription of the Roman soldier read this, live for present hour for that's all you have. Paul mentioned in chapter 15 here also that he was battling the beasts in Ephesus who said, well, eat and die, for tomorrow you die. Listen, death does not have the final word. The other day I was talking to my little one, and we're talking about death. How do you describe and, dis and discuss death with your children? She asked me, Daddy, would we ever die? I said, yes, we will die someday. She asked, would I die? I said, yes, honey, you will die. Die someday. 
I, I saw tears running down her cheeks, and she said, I'm scared. And I said, dear, listen, listen to me carefully. If you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to stay dead. He will bring you back again in a new body that does not die. Death does not have the final word. Jesus is alive. He swallowed the death in a victory. Or death, what is your victory? Or death, where is your strength? Sting, but thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ, Christian dies, he's not in some comma, coma, but he's present with the Lord awaiting the resurrection. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christ is just a corpse, preaches is profitless, faith is futile, disciples are deceivers, still is still reigning, and dead Christians are doomed to eternal darkness, and our destiny, number seven, is desperation. Paul says, listen, if we hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pity. Pity. You have those looks, right, when you preach the gospel to someone on a college campus or whatever, and they pity you. They pity you. It's like, wow, amazing. You spend your life for nothing. It's unbelievable. You believe in a Mickey Mouse. How pathetic that is. And if that is true, we should be pities. If we're just going to go six feet under, we have no fun, no life, constant denial of sin, no selfish, constant denial of selfishness, going through different sufferings for Jesus who is dead. We would have a hope of a Mormon. Would not be better than those who believe that someday they will become a God and they will have a wife God and they will have a God children somewhere in their own solar system. That's a pitiful because it's not true. I read recently about the elderly church goer who had a modern skeptic talk about the resurrection on the radio program. She concluded that everything she has believed about Orthodox Christianity was unreliable, untrue, and false. She, in despair, committed suicide. But, but, Paul already proven that first point, since Christ risen from the dead, the resurrection of the dead will happen, and it's future reality. And we could turn it right side up, these arguments. And we could say, our preaching is not pointless, but profitable because it, re it remains and stands on Jesus who is not only crucified, but alive. Our faith is not futile, but fruitful because it will lead us to salvation. Our apostles were not liars, but the true teller about God the Almighty. Our sin is not sovereign over us but are forgiven and were cleansed and don't bear guilt before the holy God. Our dead in Christ will rise again. They're not doomed, they're locked in the prison of grave, but by the power of God will be resurrected to life and we'll see, we will see them face to face. And our life is not a pity, but a joy awaiting that resurrection. 
and we are not in despair. For we believe in hope for not only for our souls, but for our bodies. So next time someone pity you, you tell him, don't pity me. Don't pity me because I stand in the testimony of the scripture. The most reliable testimony ever. Don't pity me because I was standing on the preaching of the apostles which was profitable. Don't pity me because my faith is fruitful and will give me salvation. Don't pity me because I don't believe in liars. I believe in truth teller. Don't pity me. My Savior lives. Christ has risen. The central point of the gospel is his life for ours. And it brings hope that we will live again. Now think about implications. Resurrection changes not only the future, but present. It changes here and now how you live. If you have this hope of the future life coming, then you'll not be so worried about your life here now. And you will be investing in people. And the implication of his life for mine, for our lives, would be something like this. My life for yours. My life for yours. I'm not going to use you and take from you and abuse you. I'm going to give. I will live for you. I will give my energy for you. My time for you. It's not about me. I I am golden. I will have eternal life forever. Now God wants me to reflect on the truth of the gospel, his life for mine. Do you live this way? You said that you believe in the resurrection in your heart. Does it change how you live now? Or do we lose ourselves for the sake of others? Is it obvious Is it obvious? It is the motto of your life, your life for mine, my life for yours. Listen, if we believe in the risen Christ, that means that we must believe in the crucified Jesus who gave his life for us. That got to change us, not only on the theological level, but on the very practical. My life for yours. Father, we thank you. May you bless us, Lord. We thank you for encouraging us that the resurrection of Jesus is real, is real. And we'll see him face to face and that it brings a lot of hope, not only for future, but how we live our lives now. We are standing on the scripture and we preach in the true gospel and we are not liars and deceivers, but because we bring the hope for people and we bring hope for those who trust in Christ. I pray for those who don't, that they would come to grip of the reality and praise you, Jesus. Amen.